slip of the tongue may mean the difference between victory and defeat. With a quick mind and a ready smile, how to lose friends and infuriate people all in one easy lesson. Made possible only through years of research. If you are to impress them, you must interest them. Truth. Truth and Soul Incorporated, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Truth and Soul Podcast, a podcast about New Zealand advertising, the podcast about New Zealand advertising, and we have with us today Jim Hall. Um, who you may know because Jim has been behind the scenes and occasionally in front of them on much music produced uh, in New Zealand and even further around the world, particularly relevant to the advertising scene through uh, soundtracks, which then then became Franklin Road. To, uh, to olders like me, the, uh, one of the most momentous things of Jim's long and semi-illustrious career <laughs> is that he's played with Cilla Black um, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 60s. <laughs> Um, and his favourite project that he hopes to get off the ground soon is a musical about golf. Is it called A Bucket of Balls? A Big Bucket of Balls. A Big Bucket of Balls. Uh, he was musical director of X Factor New Zealand and um, forced me to watch it on several occasions. And Jim was part of an amazing sold-out David Bowie tribute concert, which I saw at um, a large concert hall in Auckland, and that was one of the best gigs I've been to in New Zealand. Now, uh Jim, very kindly, when we started Truth and Soul podcast back in the 70s, Jim very kindly offered to be a, a guinea pig, and we recorded a conversation, and it, was, and it was the first time out for me to try interviewing someone. Uh, and uh, anyone who knows uh, Jim uh, will testify that once you've got him on a subject, it will take a bulldozer to get off. And those, those early days, I was a little bit too polite, um, at, 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 at gesturing loudly for Jim to um, maybe it was time to move on. So those fourteen hours of recording still exist somewhere. <laughs> um, but and it's great. One for the grandkids there, Jim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once we, if only we'd got on to the sixties. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was literally. I said to I said, Jim, so how did you get involved in music? And then four hours later. <laughs> I got around to my second question. Um, so it is with some trepidation that I that um, I asked Jim uh, how he got into music. Are you asking me again? That, yeah, I'm asking again, but I, I'm hoping for a truncated, truncated um, answer. I, how did I get into music? Um, I was into lots of okay, things. Okay, thanks, Jim. Now the second question. <laughs> No, uh, so well Jim, what, what you might not know, Jim is actually of Irish Cockney stock. Is that right? Um, yeah, my dad was from a large, my dad was the youngest of nine Irish Cockneys, basically. Oh, yeah. uh, from East London? From um, Elephant and Castle. Uh, uh, south, mm, yeah. South yeah. East London. Yeah. So uh, my father's father was one of nine, um, the same, from yeah. uh, East London. Uh, yeah. And we all ended up down here. So there's a long, long pedigree from the Irish Cockneys. Uh, Johnny Rotten. Yeah, uh, Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello, especially. Uh, yep. Some of the Clash, I think. A hell of a lot of people. Uh, a hell <laughs> yeah, of a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> including Jim. So, okay, Jim. You, your family were, I believe, your parents were both quite into music. 
Um, they, neither of them were musicians. Well, my dad was an amateur. My dad played the harmonica, which lots of palms did round about the post-war because they were damn cheap and easy to steal. Mm. And, um, and there were lots of harmonica bands. In fact, the Beatles had been a, a bit of a harmonica band, you know. So, yeah, and, um, and he tried to learn to play the guitar, but he was much more interested in people applauding his guitar playing rather than him learning to play. And playing, and suddenly you carried on the family tradition. Of... <laughs> yeah, and my mum didn't play any musical instruments, but sung and played music all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you, and you were down in Christchurch? Yeah, yeah. My you came here at two? I came, I, yeah, we left England on the day the king died. It came through the PA system of the ship, not that I can remember, I can tell yeah. us. Um, and, um, yeah, and came here and then straight down to Christchurch, yeah. Yeah, uh, and you've never been back to Christchurch? Well, I have actually. After I went to England in the 70s and had my kind of European rock and roll career, and when I got homesick, I ended up coming back to New Zealand. I went back to Christchurch where my parents were and I got there and thought, what have I done? <laughs> so it's the old, the old thing of the Kiwi going up to, to Europe, going, this is fantastic, and then going, I'm a bit bored now. I think I'll, I think I'll go home and then turning up at home and going, oh, shit. Oh, especially Christchurch. The, you yeah, know, it was just, mm, it was pretty dire, you know. But I was incredibly homesick and I'd realised that what I'd gone to England for to become a, a rock and roll star, I'd, I'd had a few good goes at it and with moderate success. And um, but halfway through the best parts of it, I thought, "Gee, I'm doing this, and I don't like it." <laughs> that I yeah, that's that's something that we'll come on to. But like, so you you were in London in, in swinging sixties when when music no not in the sixties oh, no okay. 73, 73 to sim to, oh, to oh, the end of seventy seven well, like seventy three uh, that year kids was like some of the best rock albums ever I, I got off the plane and they were playing Killer Queen basically that yeah. was that was the yeah and away we went you know yeah there were um, Bowie Queen probably Elton John and uh, yeah and the first gig I went to was at the Rainbow Theatre in in London was. Stevie Wonder's Innovisions album launch. Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> and um, amazing, you know. Not to, so you you were in a lot of bands during that time, and with a mixed degree of success. Yeah, that's right. I was in I was in a band of kind of um, drug crazed loonies, sort of Anglo American band, um, and we did um, European gigs and and um, like residencies. We do seven nights a week, six nine to nine till three, seven nights a week, every week for three months. Hmm. Um, um, just tough. Um, there was the end of those of the gigs that made the Beatles really. You know that the, yeah. You know that the Euros took advantage of struggling English bands who were earning nothing back in England, paid them double, and still ripped them off in Europe. You know, because you didn't have that in England. You didn't have. No. Like bands playing seven nights a week in the same venue. That's why they all went to Germany and, and Denmark and, you know. Yeah. yeah. So it was Denmark for you? Uh, it's the first the first residency I did was three and a half months in Copenhagen, straight from Christchurch, went to England, had a breakdown, got myself back together, joined a band next minute. Um, I'm in this amazing, luxurious millionaires club 
in Copenhagen playing in the band to all the beautiful rich people of Copenhagen, or which there were a large number, you know. Yeah, I, I was going <laughs> to, um, but thought I'd better not ask. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, Co- Copenhagen in those days, I think, I think was pretty interesting. So you never was that your dream to just to be on stage, or you wanted to be a pop star and have number one records? Yeah, I wanted to be a pop star, and, and I, I didn't want to be a. I didn't know what the fuck I wanted to be actually, but I, but I I wanted to be involved in what was then current popular music, you know, and like so many people who went to the UK, I, I had been offered introductions in Hollywood at, on tours I'd done, like the Silverback tour and that. The yeah. musicians on that said, "Oh, look, you should go to Hollywood," and I said, "I don't want to go to Hollywood." I want to go to England. I come from England, and that's mm. where all the music is I love. I got to England. Every every association I made in England were with musicians who dreamed of playing American music. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, everyone was playing Steely Dan, the Eagles. They, um, it was incredible. All the session musicians. That's all they all they wanted to play. You know. Yeah. And um. And it was really weird. I, I, if I'd gone to LA, I would have ended up in a Brit Soundlight band, you know, because I think that was the transatlantic thing at the time, you know. Yeah. So, um, Jim, you, you, you mentioned your um, breakdown, and so I'm always interested in... Breakdowns. In, in, <laughs> in breakdowns. No, in, in, in mental health, because it's, it's something that we don't, we don't generally... No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, well, I wonder what, what do you think? What do you think brought that on? Because they were in England, how, doing what you dreamt about doing, playing rock music live on stage to uh, hundred tens, three yeah. adoring people, and um, yeah, wasn't the, working. Yeah, it was something about when you're doing things like that, you can become incredibly lonely, despite the fact that you're in a room with five thousand people. And I found it really, really lonely. Um, and and I instantly started questioning why I really wanted to do it in the first place. And I suppose the most fun I had was when I got on a recording studio, um, except in those days, even even though I knew quite a bit about recording studios, they, you know, if we went to the manor to record, which I ended up doing on a number of occasions, yeah. you're in this amazing state-of-the-art studio. But, but the guys who were engineering in that were... The, the top people, the guys who were recording Queen and Elton John, and mm. and um, and so you didn't say, oh, hang on, let me have a fiddle. You know, that didn't yeah. happen there. It wasn't until I got back to New Zealand that I started committing audio atrocities on on um, things. You know, yeah, and and made a career out of it. Do do you think that your is it possible that that you know this is what you dreamed of, and then bang, you got it, and then you feel is this it? Is that in the in the way that a, that a, a twenty one year old well nineteen year old kid suddenly playing football for England is in the danger of going? Well, I've dreamt about this all my life, and here I am, and it just leaves them with a bit of an empty feeling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've always, I've always had a lot of trouble um, w- when I do music. Um, I just get emotionally Im- involved in it, even if it's the most dire piece of shit uh, that you've ever heard I can't half do it which is why I've always had lots of other hobbies because I can't do music as a hobby <laughs> I'm either I mean 
I'm either in boots and all, yeah. or I'm out. And um, and so that's it, always been a, a. It's taken me most of my life to work out that this was the issue. You know, like I don't sit at home and put record. People say to me, "Oh, what are you listening to at the moment?" I go, oh, "Whatever I'm playing, or national radio." You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or 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 truth. Tooth and Soul podcast. Yeah, absolutely, of course. I, I can imagine. So, uh, have, having had a, a mixed time in Europe, you you returned to Christchurch and New Zealand, and you find yourself doing ads. Well, not quite. The first thing I found myself doing was playing in a good cover band in Christchurch, and being a complete wanker. Um, I mean, I just. I had a chip on my shoulder like a cowrie log and I thought, well, fuck you guys. I've come, I've done all this and here I am playing in a nightclub to a whole lot of lost and lonely souls. Mm. And so I raced radio control cars for a year, won the New Zealand Radio Control Car Championship. and Was the money good in radio control cars? Definitely not. And um, <laughs> so, so you stopped me. So you, you were the wanker in the band. Did, yeah. did you get thrown out of the band? No, 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 no. I think I, I, I still talk to members of the of that very band, and they say, "Oh, we learnt such a lot when you came back. You had all this knowledge that we didn't have." And but um, gee, I, uh, <laughs> I think back to it, and I think, gee, I must have been a bit of a prick when I came back. Mm. But um, and then after I'd piddled around with the radio control cars for a while, and and, and I looked at my girlfriend now wife and. And she had a kind of questioning look in her eyes, and I thought, well, maybe I should actually do something. So I contacted a recording studio in Wellington and said, have you got a job for me? And I thought I heard the guy at the other end of the phone say yes. So we just packed my rusty old Alpha Soot up with shirt and drove to Wellington and walked in the door, and he said, oh, did, I, did you ring me? And, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I started from there, really. And... Um, and off we went, you know. Yeah, so so he was doing all kinds of commercial work? No, no, the man I spoke to was a guy called Rocky Duchet, still alive and well and kicking in Wellington, who had the first proper recording studio outside of EMI. EMI was like the Abbey, and had a miniature Abbey Road in Wellington. Yeah. Because Wellington was way more a go-to place then than it, kind of recording-wise, you know. And Rocky had built a 16-track studio, soon became a 24-track studio, and it was pretty state-of-the-art. wasn't quite what I'd seen back in the UK, but it was pretty close. And lots of shit was happening. It was the begin. It was um, there were local artists, John Stevens, who went on to have a longer career, Sharon O'Neill. Um, they were all recording the, more or less the day I arrived, you know, and and then one day someone said, "Oh, we need someone to do some write some string arrangements for for Sharon O'Neill," and I'm I can do it. I put my finger up. And, did, did you know anything about doing doing? Yeah, yeah, because I'd done a degree at university, and and even that in music. Was, yeah, in string arrangement. I didn't realize that was a that well, was an no, well, well. It was a, a degree in music, and in those days was. Every kind of music you could possibly do that couldn't possibly earn you any money, um, like just doing things that sounded like Ralph Vaughan Williams, really, or, or you know, it was very, very classical and very, um, you were just learning to become a music teacher. Yeah, I do like Vaughan Williams, though. Yeah, same here. Yeah. That's right. But some of the others, it was very, 
you go to a music school now and you and they're teaching you how to do lots of different skills many of those skills are completely almost superseded now but uh, yeah but um but nonetheless at least they're kind of vaguely like the modern world but the canterbury school of music was very academic and it was great if you were going to possibly go on to conduct the berlin philharmonic but of course there's, there's only one Berlin Philharmonic and lots of graduates. You know? Yeah, and, yeah. A, and only one conductor. Yeah. So, so you're in a, a, a pretty good studio in um, Wellington doing recording music. Yeah, for... playing and being a session musician largely. Yeah. Um, for And they had an associate company there um, that was run by a guy called Steve Robinson, who I was actually on the phone to earlier today just because I was having a memory jog mm. problem. And Steve Robinson was a folk musician, really. Uh, I'd never heard of him before or met him before. The minute we minute we met, there was good chemistry between us. Um, Steve was is was and is one of the most tuneful people I've ever met. He could just you could open the phone book. He'd pick up a guitar and he'd sing a jingle. It would definitely be a jingle, but. It would always be memorable, and it would, and his performance of it, you'd think, oh, okay, right, I will check that out. And um, so you two got into jingle writing. Yeah. So I was, and and back then we were recording on tape. Don't forget, we'd actually how Steve and I would record, um, and other people as well. But quite often it was just Steve and I. We'd get a metronome, an old mechanical one, and record it on a tape track, and. For 60 seconds and then steve would get on the drum kit and i'd pick up a bass and we'd play the bass and drums to it and we'd just layer things up on a tape recorder like that and between us we we could knock these things out and they were and they were pretty good you I, know I craft these things yeah yeah i think so uh, at what point did you go i know what i'll do my own i could make my own studio um well i I've always been a dabbler. I when when the first possible home computers came out, I bought one. I did a. I yeah, did you had not, a Commodore. Um, before the Commodore, yeah, I had a TRS eighty, a Radio Shack TRS eighty. I taught myself basic. I went to night school and did digital electronic night mm. school course. I just always was inquisitive, as my dad had been about electronics. You know. That, yeah, that that would have been so useful. Well, it was, but everything was taped then. And, of course, a multi-track tape recorder was a two-inch machine, hugely expensive. You know, a quarter of a million dollars for a tape recorder to get you started. When you say two-inch, two-inch tape. Two-inch wide tape, yeah. yeah. And, and anyway, I just so I, I had all different things going on. And I was producing people's albums and, and always to critical um, acclaim and, and you know, getting nominated for New Zealand Producer of the Year Award and that. But I wasn't making any money out of it. Yeah. Like the only money I was making was out of playing on Steve's sessions. And your radio-controlled cars. No, no, I'd, get, I'd yeah. managed to bury those by then. And um, and also, sometime, every now and then, I'd get a phone call from someone in an advertising agency. I knew nothing of advertising. And they'd go, look, um, I was interested when you were playing on that session I did, we did with Steve the other day. Um, I wonder whether you'd like to come in and... Um, and look at uh, this job we're doing, and so I go, oh, okay then, and and, um, and I realised that you know I had a different personality to Steve, and so people were coming to me for certain things, 
and this kind of went on. I did a, a produce a few. Are you, more are you implying that you had a more amenable? No, no. I just had a different outlook to Steve. Steve was. I had a shit voice. Steve had a great voice. Yeah. So I was less inclined to pick up a guitar and sing a song, mm. um, because it would usually clear the room. And um, where Steve could sing the phone book, and um, and also I had an arty pretentiousness that was maybe for, I was predicting how the advertising world would become in the next ten years. That um, you know, so all of a sudden someone would come to me and go, "Oh, look, we." The big breakthrough for me was. Um, a guy called Bob Hall, who was the creative director of Mackay King, which was highly regarded advertising. Was that before Sarches? Yeah, just before, just, it would have been a year before they became Sarches, mm. came to me and said, look, we're doing this television ad. It's a two-minute long television ad. Can you believe two minutes long? Mm. And, um, and we've got, um, and Jeff Dixon is shooting it, and I didn't know who Jeff Dixon was or anything. And um, he said, we've got a cut of it, and, and it... And, we haven't thought about the music and I go and look at this ad and it's the National Bank and um, and it's very typical Jeff he, he, it just looked amazing um, God knows how much money he spent on it and it had tons about eight cameras and it just looked the business it was beautifully edited and um, and Bob said oh can you think of any music to do and I said oh yeah I could you know and um, so I ended up Getting the symphony orchestra. I mean, God knows if the session had gone wrong, I certainly didn't have the money to to bail myself out of it. But recorded the symphony orchestra playing, and I played the very clunk. What now sounds quite clunky piano, but at the time, it was so different to other New Zealand ads at the time. It's so unjingly, and um, once I did that, then the phone started ringing. You know, and um, and I any th- idea what year that was? That would have been had to be about eighty two or eighty three, yeah. yeah. And so about more early eighty four, I was very disorganised. I didn't have processes going, and I, and I was doing demos on a four track cassette player, and and it was kind of pretty rough and ready in my mind anyway. And one day Steve came up to the house and said, "Why don't we go into partnership?" You know. And that started soundtracks, really. That was how we... And I, I, on that note, I shall hold you for a minute, Jim, and go to the beer fridge. <laughs> keep smiling. Just keep smiling. You're listening to Truth and Soul. soul. Uh, so, was that the first and last time that you had um, a symphony orchestra in the recording? No, no, that was just the beginning of, yeah. um, of, of mass hysteria, really. And at, at, the, at the same time this was happening, there was, um, New Zealand was a terrible place. It was the Muldoon government. Um, if you wanted to import, say, a tape recorder into yeah. New Zealand, then a guy in Waipukarau would say, oh, no, I'm, I make them here in Waipukarau. So the government would slip 150% sale tax on it. Mm. So things were just impossible, you know. And then a company called Fostex came up with a 16-track tape recorder on half-inch tape and made the whole process way cheaper. Of course, you couldn't get them into New Zealand, but I, somehow I got a letter from the Pope or something. I can't remember quite how I did it, but I managed to get one through customs. We set it up, and everyone looked at it and go, oh, well, that'd be good for demos, you know, and then you can go into the proper recording studio and record them afterwards. 
<laughs> I've got to tell you, we went into a proper recording studio very seldom after that. We were we yeah. were we were rolling, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so you said that, that soundtracks was originally in Wellington. Yeah, originally in Wellington, and and you had to be in Wellington because that's where that's all, where the answers were. All brand advertising was done, and all kind of up in Auckland, it was much more packaged goods and foodstuffs, and yeah. down there it was it was much more um, what's the word aspirational, wanky kind of yeah. quite often meaningless ads, which I excelled at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I I, I can understand that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, after a while of um, aspirational wanky ads, you'd had enough, or or they'd had enough of you, or uh, and you decided that that Auckland was the place to be. Yeah, sort of. Um, what we went through a number of changes. One of which is is that that my partnership with Steve kind of ended. I already had Ian Morris, legendary engineer and member of the Dudes, was a junior partner in the and a vital part of our team. And Kelly Blood, who I'm still in a choir with here, she was mm. in it. it. We were a real team, and we needed to be because the amount of work we are doing was was just... So you were the go-to advertising musical studio in Wellington? In Wellington. And, to, and, to, and if you weren't in Auckland, if you weren't looking for what Murray Grindley was doing, which was a, a real thing, Murray's thing is very recognisable and really good, but if you didn't want that, then basically you came down with eight members of the staff and the client and a whole lot of people, came down to Soundtracks, spent about five minutes briefing me, and then then you went to a restaurant for six hours and and, yeah. and afterwards they picked up a tape on the way and jumped back on the plane. And yeah. <laughs> sometimes it was that stupidly... So, so this, folks, this was the 80s. Um, this was I, the I 80s. Believe, a time that I've uh, spoken about. I was working in a casino in the Bahamas at the time, and I think I missed out on um, on a lot of fun. But um, <laughs> it was there were wild times because it was still it was the end of the kind of Don Draper era in some ways. So yeah. The advertising agencies, when when I first started doing lots of advertising, sort of 85, 86, 87, the the agencies were incredibly male chauvinist, you know. Um, all the men looked a bit like Don Draper, or, uh, or looked, thought they did. And everyone yeah. smoked. You went to a, a brief; everybody was smoking. The cat was smoking, mm. you know. Mm. And and there'd be women there in the agency. They bought coffee in, you know. And men made incredibly sexist comments about them as they were leaving. Um, but not you. Not me, of course. No. And then a weird change happened towards the end of the 80s and all of a sudden all people like Chrissy LaHood and Jill Brinsden and people like that started appearing in agencies with an actual job being taken yeah. seriously. Yeah. And um, and it dawned, started to dawn on the advertising agency that, that, that in actual fact <laughs> these people could be actually doing the job better than they were doing it, you know. Yeah. And, and it was quite a quantum change. And then... As soon as the 90s started, a, a lot of the head officers all of a sudden didn't need to be so close to the beehive. And um, back in the Muldoon era, all the banks, everything had to be right by the beehive because they had to constantly be pissing in the prime minister's pocket and be involved. They, it was very political lobbying. But by the beginning of the 90s, everyone thought, oh, hang on, maybe we could be in Auckland. 
And then, you know, a howling southerly came to Wellington and they thought, let's move to Auckland, you know. Yeah, I think this to me, I, I wasn't in New Zealand at the time, I didn't get here till 2000, but that, the drift, I mean, it was, it was a quite a fast drift. It was a fast say. drift, yeah. It, it, I still don't quite, don't quite understand, you know, I, I, I mean, Auckland's not cheaper than Wellington. No, I, I guess there's it's the climate's a bit more equitable, but you don't normally, you know, if that worked in France, everyone would live in Marseille, not Paris. But yeah, that's right. It's um, it was it was funny times because most likely the drift had happened earlier than we recognised, but we were so used to, you know, I'd do a job in the in those days, say for someone we both know, Peter Thompson. Yeah, at, at, I, no, at the beginning no, of DDB, of yeah. and um, and Pete would come down from Auckland, you know, they they'd take the you know the whole plane would get booked out on some of these jobs just with advertising people coming down, and of course the main film companies were still based in Wellington, you know. A bit, a bit of a side note, Pete uh, Pete Thompson, um, married to Judy Thompson, who's still head of TV at DDB. In case you haven't come across Pete before. Uh, he's from Birmingham, and he was a, a creative director, which now we call ECD, of uh, DDB back in the day. And I worked with him for, I don't know, about five years, mm. five, six years at uh, at uh, DDB New Zealand, up here in Auckland. Hi, Pete. Uh, yeah, so so there were there were people coming down from Auckland to, to work in Wellington, and then you went, right, okay, let's get up there. Yeah, and they started started to be a lot less of them, and also l- less work, and also less agencies in Wellington. Yeah. And um, and and the the partnership at Soundtrack split up for various reasons. We just went our separate ways. Yeah. I bought my my partners out of it, and I owned it, and with the express intent of getting rid of all the tape recorders and everything, and going completely computer-based, because yeah. I had a real kickstart on this. I, yeah. knew, I knew this technology where other people were wary of it. And we were going to, we had young kids, you know, about to start high school. So off we go, we're going to, we're going to Auckland. And then my wife got sick. Um, and really, we lost a year because she had to go into hospital. It was a bit life-threatening for it. And, um, so we sort of ended up stuck in in Wellington for a year, and I was just on planes all the time, and the budgets could take a plane trip, but you know when you get back and you finally, hello, <laughs> we're in a hotel. <laughs> no, 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 we're in a lift. Hello, operator. This is the operator. Oh. Yeah, so we were kind of about a year behind, and and you'd, I'd go up to Auckland and I'd do a job, and I'd end up mixing it in a in a hire studio, which was costing me money, you know, and then I'd get back, fly into Wellington, airport would be closed due to weather, they have to land in Palmerston North, catch a bus down to Wellington, get to Wellington, there'd be a phone call, ah, oh, the clients come in, could you change and next minute I'm in a plane and hmm. and any profits gone, you know. Yeah. So, end of '95, I well November '95, I sailed my thirty-foot keelboat up with three other engineers to Auckland, and the family went up by road, and we a truck took soundtracks up to 
a rented room. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so it's it's quite a lot of investment to build a studio. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I I think it's fair to say. Sorry, I, I know absolutely nothing about it. It just looks there's an awful lot of machines and it it's feels like then, you've got to go to the bank. It's a lot less now, you know. Right, okay. Yeah, it's still expensive. Yeah. You can do it on your phone now, I suppose. But. Well, oh, absolutely. I mean, the Beatles didn't have near, anything nearly as sophisticated as I've got on my iPhone. You know? Yeah, garage band. So you you originally down at, in K Road? No, a, a first studio I moved to was in York Street. Um, I hired the old recording booth of Mandrill, which had been a, a long-term rock and roll recording studio in York Street. And they were finding that if they stopped recording rock and roll and just concentrated on advertising voiceovers and sound design and things like that, they actually pay the rent. And yeah. um, so they had some space. And so I signed at least for a year Moved in, set everything up. I'd stolen an engineer from another sort of rock and roll recording studio in town, um, a music engineer. There's no way I want to get involved in things like audio post or that. And, um, and set up shop on January 1996 and thought, geez, if we don't get a job soon, this is going to be bloody embarrassing. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, and so... Uh, over the over the next few years, I, I guess the, there were a couple of other um, rival commercial music advertising companies, in particular around Auckland. But you made a name for yourself. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's always Murray's always been there. Murray and I are about the same age. He's been he was in advertising. Uh, this is this is Murray Grindley, yeah. folks. And I've heard Murray's name mentioned for the t- twenty years I've been in Auckland. I don't think I've ever met him. Ah, um, oh, he's a really, really yeah. top bloke, and yeah. um, and his he his success didn't come from um, luck, um, but unlike yours, <laughs> unlike mine, yeah. yeah. And um, but Murray's been doing it a, a, a long time, and Murray is Murray, um, and so I think Murray was most likely a bit surprised when I turned up in Auckland. Um, I'd always been that guy in Wellington, I think. Um, there were other people around, but Murray was the was the the big cheese up here but um but murray was very much a traditionalist you know record in the studio get a fill the room up with 14 people record the the job musicians or hangers on um musicians yeah and um and then you know back to the agency and someone says oh what would it be like if and and um whereas i was doing things a lot more like we do them now much um um, using computers, I'm not saying that there weren't humans involved, and and I try always tried to make it not sound like I was using a computer unless that's what people wanted. Yeah. Um, but it did mean that if someone rang me up two hours after it was all over and said, "Well, what can you change?" That quite often the answer was yes. So, so what are the the challenges of going through the through the process? And I'm and I'm thinking now of because I, I always found you've written an ad. That's the easy bit. And then uh, somebody goes, oh, we need to put music on it. And you go, oh, bugger, I forgot about music. We're going to have to pay for that, pay for that as well. Yeah. And most creators will have in their head you know, a Rolling Stones track or, yeah. you know, or a, or a um, sorry, more, more modern equivalent of that. I really don't know what that is. The Weekend. there you go. Um, and they 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 come along to you and they go, right, here's, here's an ad. Can you, can you do something like Penny Lane on it? 
and that, that all falls down into a world of disaster. How could they help you? How could they make your job easier and get a better it's, result? It's really hard now because no, very seldom does anyone ever ask you what you think would be right. Um, it's it's almost unheard of. Um, any job that you're likely to do comes with music already on it, which someone's cut it to. Yeah. Um, everyone's in completely locked into. Um, and also anything that's currently, like a, if someone put an Ariana Grande track on, then you can't do something a bit like that. You know, it's um, because everything's so compartmentalised now. You know, um, you just got to ring up the record company and they're going to say, um, oh, that'll be you know four hundred thousand dollars and you'll say oh the clients put four thousand aside for the job um you know um so so if if they came to you, to you with a script even without pictures and said um we we want some music for this and as you say that doesn't happen yeah and i probably have never said it to to you or or you know the, the equivalent but i don't remember ever it being suggested because it, it it's normally we've got a brief because you've normally got like a week to do it yeah, or, or something. And, and you've got to brief the music company and you need to, to in your mind, my mind anyway, go along with, right, we want something like this, as opposed to we want music for this, what do you think? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and there's something like this thing now, the music is so specific because music has become so, so um, available you know, people used to dream in the 60s, well, Elton John actually did it. He had all the world's music in his la- in his bedroom, you know, he had a massive record collection. Oh, we I, always thought, dreamed, I thought it was a euphemism. <laughs> we always dreamed we'd have all the music of the world, you know, and we'd be able to play any of it. Well, now yeah. we have, yeah. and we hardly ever listen to it. Uh, well, well, yeah, from, <laughs> me- from memory, I, uh, like you don't, you don't listen to Spotify because you always struggle to know what to put on. Yeah. See, I mean, I hate, hate to hark back to it, but this, some of the most glorious times were were when I first, the first few years of living up in Auckland, the late 90s, doing jobs with the said Peter Thompson. I'd yeah. go to briefs with Pete, and Pete would go, oh, fucking music. I can't do his accent, I'm sorry, I'm really mm, shit at accents. Pete can't do his accent. But, but he'd go, this is an orange. No, it isn't. That's an orange. And I said, okay, see you later. And that was, yeah. that's what, that was the music brief. And um, and he said, you'll know what to do. And and I'd just go and do something. And um, yeah. And um, and we we would make ads that I'd put them on. And I'd go, wow, I'm ready. That is just that's a real trip, you know. I mean, this is when we when advertising had the um. It had the luxury of not needing to fit a whole lot of bullet points that have come from a client who's got a oh. degree in marketing. Uh, and um, and um, oh, the, the, the 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 briefs and and it, it it seems to be a thing that running through the process of clients trying to define what their business is is that and dare I say it like don't even do it themselves mm. and they come up with seven adjectives which seem to be picked at random or because the 
the CEO likes them and they have no connection between them and, you know, I don't know, brotherly and equitable and, you know, sunny or whatever. And, and, and then it, any piece of work gets judged against all seven of them and, you know, woe betide if you only cover six of them or yes. five. And it's like, oh, you know, it needs to be a little bit more yellow as well because that is our colour. Is that music really yellow? And, yeah, that's right, yeah. And you think, well, you know, you just equate it to something like Sergeant Pepper or something like that. And what were they trying to achieve at the time? They hadn't a clue what they were trying to achieve. They were yeah. just recording the, whatever shit came in their mind, and and we all love it now. And if someone uses that as a reference, they, they, they're expecting that there was some plan to it. But, yeah. but there is... And I've always contested that it's pretty hard to stuff something up. Oh, if you, I, if you're I, confident, I don't put yourself down. <laughs> <laughs> if you're competent, then um, it's pretty hard to it's pretty hard to put some music onto it onto some pictures, and people go, "Oh shit, that's awful." If people were just less specific, it would just be so much better. I have to acknowledge that the enemy of a great music track is a fantastic script. It's um, um, yeah, never been a problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The uh, the only thing I'd have to say on observation is there aren't many fantastic scripts around. But gee, it's very hard to convince the industry that you know people come in with these ideas. You know, well, I I, I think it's often I, I yeah I believe that it's very difficult to judge an ad by a script. Yeah, um, which is which is what we all do, and we spend a lot of time doing it. But there's a, a lot of scripts that people have jumped up and down with excitement that have produced extremely mediocre ads and other scripts that, that people go, oh, is that it? Oh, I suppose so, which turned out to be wonderful. Mm. You only have to look at Hollywood and go, these, these people have um, invested vast amounts of money and, and uh, time getting the, the best script writers in the world to put it together, and this is it? And yeah, it, it, yeah. And it's... <laughs> I watched... Um, I expect you'll like this. It's it's a war film. Or is it Midway? Uh, oh, Midway. Okay. Right? I have, no, I haven't seen it. It's that. on Neon. It's yeah. worth watching because yeah. you know, there's lots of explosions and, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. But the script is unfucking believable. Just the the crassness of it um, and the idiocy of, of it all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They go, oh, yeah, we're going to spend hundred million, hundred million US dollars making that. Yeah, um, and. That was a digression. This is less so. Uh, have you seen the dig? No, that that's on next on my um, that's on my next on my list. Okay, I don't, I, I don't know when uh, audience will be watching this, but the dig is um, it's quite big on Netflix at the yeah, moment yeah, in, in yeah. the English speaking world, and it's uh, uh, yeah about, about an archaeological dig. Who would have thought? Yeah, but uh, I remember. Um, so I watched I, I watched like the first half hour of it, and I thought I really like this, and. I realised that a big part of me liking it was, well, Ranulf Fiennes. Yeah. Uh, great actor. And the music on it, because they had all these uh, loving shots of Suffolk, which is not actually the the most picturesque of uh, yeah. counties of England. Yeah. But the music was really uh, adding to it. And I remembered a presentation you give where you, where you can completely change the meaning yeah. of a scene by changing the music, and it and it's, it was quite or, or, um, um, orchestral and a little bit sad, and I thought normally an English, a, a sort of a, a subtle English 
costume rom-com of that nature would have a sort of brass band on it or you know it would be a little bit jolly and and funny and everything yeah. and it, and and it didn't have that and it was so much stronger for it yeah i mean that used to be my party trick doing that yeah. just running the same picture and playing different yeah just playing one instrument sitting at a piano and playing different it was a picture of a dog yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah. right happy yeah. dog sad dog bulgy dog yeah. funky dog you know with, with the same pictures all, yeah all yeah the always the same picture and um but it does work you know it's yeah a, your ears instantly tell you what you're watching you know yeah um that is the power of music but um but but the world has become very suspicious of of um being emotionally um blackmailed like that um you don't see nearly as much of it and there's some really strange music around now like the music to bridgerton which was uses that um uh what uh, that string quartet oh, i forget what they're called now the artisan quartet i think they're called and they've got about eight thousand albums on spotify and they're, and they're really or, accomplished or with one play each now, oh no 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 at the moment they're running hot and and they just record endless contemporary music like the weekend ariana grande yeah. and and but strip purely as instrumental string quartet pieces and their ship came rolling in with bridgerton because they ended up with kind of oh, what's her name the girl with the purpley hair I, I, i'm not going to help with bridgerton <laughs> but, no. and um and some of it was really i found the series so terrible i had to watch every episode of it so um so it's very hard for me to criticize it when i watched it all it had the the most bizarre music to the sex scenes that <laughs> yeah. thought, who thought this was working yeah. and, um, but there we go um i'm most, most certainly not the target audience here but um but yeah it's certainly to me upset the sex scenes but there we go but it's yeah so uh back to creative directors <laughs> um or, or, I have or, known. or, or yeah. creators what, what was your uh, worst experience of um uh, uh, double speak by creatives Mentioning no names, of course. Uh, well, well, there's the my, there's Toby, my, Nick, Mike O'Sullivan, <laughs> Paul Katner. Um, I think I have to go offshore. Uh, uh, Very diplomatic. Uh, yeah, well, I have because it's unbelievable. Uh, we, I did a job um, in the early noughties um, for a Korean advertising agency. And a massive, it was a massive telecommunications company. They set up their own production company just to produce, just just to produce it in Melbourne. And then I get this, I don't know anything about this, of course. I get a phone call and this an English-speaking guy calling me saying, um, we are doing this job for this company. I said, um, oh, I have to say the company actually, SK Telecom. They've done it. God knows what it is. It's a yeah. telephone company. He said, um, and he loves everything about your show reel. And he especially loves your Pokerikariana Air New Zealand ad. And it was the yeah. big ad I'd done for Roger McDonnell and all those guys. Yeah. Um, 90 seconds. OTT, beautiful pictures. Richard Gibson shot it. Became an iconic thing on my reel. He really loves that. He just he wants all the emotion, all the power of that in this job. I said, oh, that sounds good. That's yeah, you know, I, I love these kind of jobs. Hmm. And I was being incredibly sincere about it. So they all come over to New Zealand and we have a meeting. 
turns out that Misto... So, so sorry, were they, were, they, were they were shooting in New Zealand or shooting in... Um, they were shooting at New Zealand. They were post doing the digital oh. post here too. Yeah. So they come over and brief me and Mr. So-and-so, the creative director, is there. But Korea is very hierarchical and um, yeah. he can't talk to me. He doesn't speak English. Although yeah. if I said, gee, Mr. So-and-so is a prick, he would have instantly, he would have known everything I said. He, but, he didn't speak English and your Korean at that stage was not No, then my Korean perfect. wasn't that good. So everything had to be passed down through an interpreter, in the, a junior interpreter, who of course had to to acknowledge his own social position. So anyway, he tells me, again, I get the whole spiel, they have all these huge ads that are on my on my show-off reel that he, they love. So, okay, this we talk, talk about our job. It's the SK Telecom ad. It's two lengths. It's um, two seconds and 0.8 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, think, this, is, this is before Ricky Gervais is, is, yeah. rise to fame, but, but if Ricky had, if Ricky had yeah. heard this, 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 I'm thinking, okay, someone's winding me up here. And I, and I started talking like it was a wind-up, but yeah. it wasn't a wind-up. And sure enough, they just all of this huge structure was to make a mnemonic, basically. Yeah. And and really, what they wanted was bung, dung, 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 you know, the Microsoft. Yeah. Um, yeah. I said, well, I've got to tell you, it's the 0.8 second one is going to be small. And I said, oh, it needs to be big. It's a big company. And I said, look, I was trying to explain, and and in one of the worst ever client. Um, discussions I've ever done I said look let there's me, a long list let yeah. Me, yeah there's a long list let me explain to you if I was to drop go to the top of the Empire State Building and drop a matchbox off it and record it and let it and let that recording last for 10 seconds it would sound quite big and if I went to the top of the Empire State Building and dropped a grand piano off the top of it and let and recorded it and let the recording last 0.8 of a second. It would sound small, and <laughs> everyone's looking at me like. So I ended up doing about 60 or 70 variations of different different what, ones. What was Ele the winner? Ele <laughs> now electronic, you know, acoustic, organic instruments, electronic voices. Oh, I just did everything. So I we start playing them. Uh, I mean, honestly, there's just so many things to play them. I start playing them. We play on and on and on it goes. And then there's a... And then it says, Mr. So-and-so likes the first note of number 17. He likes the 24th note of number 36. And, and, and I'm just, it's unbelievable. And um, I said, well, they don't, they're just different things. And... um. So and oh, he wants that. So I'd make so you, these. What, up. What, you had to put them together. So I just make them up. It's just nonsense. Dong shit. Dong. No, yeah, that's right, nonsense shit. And yeah, oh, oh, he's liking that. You know, it's just complete nonsense. Next minute, the job's off, and I mean, we've done the job basically, and so have, and so is the post production video company. Mm. Um, they've already gone through one editor who has literally had to have mental health leave for two seconds. Yeah, for and um, and um, it turns out the creative director is in prison in South Korea. And what, what, um, now, <laughs> no, he they? was then. Oh right, okay. They, yeah. He'd just been slammed into prison. What and for? um, I don't know. Crimes against music. I I do not know, but and and we were sort of struggling in the old cash flow department because mm. I'd been doing this for a long time. Yeah. And um, 
off we go trying to get our money out of these guys and um we actually got uh, you know i mean i didn't buy a gun but i was thinking of it you know um yeah. it, was, it was coming to mind as the next obvious option <laughs> so that beats any any new zealand creative director for yeah well i don't know the year's young um <laughs> so so what is your what is your favorite the your favorite uh, musical ad that you've done yeah, well, I don't. I just, you know, I do one or two a year now. So it's um, um, uh, I was kind of proud of um. I love doing all the Vivaldi um, mm. National Bank ones we did. They were just so much. Well, you fun got to play record. with an orchestra. Yeah, and and um, and everyone in the production of it had one thing in mind to make it as good as could possibly be. Um, a lot of the early Air New Zealand ads were done, were done like that you know that, that yeah. had lots of production value integrity ads i did with crazy phil peacock who used to shoot ads in the early 90s really bizarre out there ads hkm and uh, you know marco marinkovic and and um he'd get L, uh, they hired ljk set right you know the cra- the english um it was a um, motorcycle ride. Yeah, they? that's right. Yeah, oh, they got oh, him yeah. to, to voice them, and um, and they were so bizarre. And we could just do, we could. Do, they shot one. It was meant to be Monaco, and it was shot down on the Auckland waterfront, and and um, it was the dodgiest thing. Like it had a hair in the gate of the camera that was on, actually went to air like that, and yeah. um, some, but um. Yeah, and um, we had to write a song. Cameras don't have gates anymore, do they? No, no, that's right. We had to write a song to make it feel like, um, make it France, and we were in a very silly mood. So we wrote, hello, my old trout, how are you today, in in French. And um, accordion to put, put the whole French band together. And when that went to air, we just thought, oh, that's, that is the best in-joke we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> Bonjour, Monsieur Poisson, or something I can't remember. Yeah. Um, and and, and um, we rolled around on the floor for a while in, in self-indulgent laughter, thinking, "Wow, I always wanted to have my old trout on." But nobody noticed. No one noticed here, no, but no. that didn't that didn't matter to us. <laughs> but I'm talking about now. Now all I can see is chaos and confusion and panic. Take it easy, friend. We're doing the best we can to help you. So the uh, democratization of creativity, which is largely due to advances in com- computer, yeah, computing rather. I mean, I presume that that's affected music in, in the same kind of way, in that anybody can now make music, as we said, with their phone. Yeah, you don't need, you don't necessarily need to have the New Zealand um, Philharmonic Orchestra into record it do you think that has led to instead of making it easier for people if i hear i'm just not just talking about ads do you think that's that's made it yes it's made it easier for people to make music has the music got any better um well better is you just can't yeah it, i yeah, just did yeah yeah that's right you know is um other beatles better than mozart you know i mean it's really hard to say that music is worse than it was because it isn't it's music is a reflection of its time um and and only history will tell you whether any of it will live and very little of 20th century music will live on 
Bob Dylan will most likely, but mainly for poetic reasons and and most likely the Beatles, but you can't guarantee these things. When Johann Sebastian Bach died, everyone thought, well, thank God he's gone because Johann Christian, his son, is the gun. No one even knows that music now, you know, but they all know Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, So, yeah, the thing that's affected music and not just in advertising, but very noticeably in advertising, is how the minute music stopped being a physical object and be, and went online, um, apart from the record companies handling it terribly, absolutely fighting it rather than embracing it, the minute it wasn't a thing anymore that you could... Um, oh, yeah, I've got... I mean, I've had it before. I've had the whole of the Beatles collection on a USB stick on my phone. I can't remember why I needed it. So uh, on my key ring. So everything that's in, you know, thousands of volts at, at the back of Abbey Road in London mm-hmm. is actually on a USB stick on my key ring in highest quality audio. You know, there's no cover. You're not looking at something that lovingly reading the, the bullshit on the back of it or, you know, it's all of a sudden... And and music's always been like that. Like like our friend Dick Frizzell can paint a painting, yeah. and it's a painting. There it is. You've got yeah. it there. I could write you an exquisite um, symphony. I've never done it before, but you know, there's always a chance I'd fluke it. And you go, wow, that's amazing. The minute it stops playing, it's not there. And you know, it's ethereal. And um, and that's that. So uh, then. Quite, you know, that's what happens. So many kind of plagiarism suits and that, like, um, you know, like Donald Trump will think, "Oh, born in the USA, yes, that's that could have been written for me." So yeah. he'll put, he'll walk on stage to it, even though the song is basically saying, "Don't vote for people like Donald Trump." Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and he thinks, "Oh, boy, it's there. I can use it," you know, and um, and so now we end up with bizarre copyright infringement cases, and you know. Uh, talking about albums, and, I, and and this might be an age thing, sorry listeners, an age thing for both of us, but but growing up, you got an album which was, you know, two weeks pocket money or whatever, yeah. and, and, it was a, and it was a big thing, and you would play that over and over again and, until you finally realised that it was shit in some case or a, a work of genius in others, but you, but you would pour, oh, sit down and read every single word that was written on the um, album. Who you know? Who played yeah. on what track? What? Yeah, to, uh, I still to know those details. Yeah, of, of, of music. I can hardly remember the music, but I know everyone who was on it because yeah. I read the label yeah, and, and, and and who produced it and where and where it was recorded and and. But these days, I don't know. It's, it's just well, that's right because there's no longer a package, you know. Yeah. And uh, in some ways, that's why there's been a small, slightly over exaggerated return to vinyl. Um, a lot of it's because it's a thing to do. It's like it's like having a smoke and a drink. Um, yeah. it, it's a thing to do. Get out a record, put it on. There is a satisfaction about the whole mechanical thing. Um, because you you'd sit down and you actually in in a in a group of people. Oh, I might yeah. have been drunk or stoned, but you you would sit down and listen actively listen to it. Whereas now it seems to be just background. Yeah. If I get if I get my phone out now go onto spotify and play beethoven's ninth symphony 
we know, I don't believe we're going to think of it as being quite the amazing piece of music it is. The, yeah. <laughs> and, but if I put it on a on a on a twelve inch al- album now on a turntable, we'd all hear it as being higher quality, yeah. and yet it isn't. In actual fact, it's demonstrably worse quality than what's coming off my phone. Yeah, it, that whole perception of music has changed quite a lot, you know. And every now and then people get their comeuppance, of course, when they decide they want to use, um, you know, a Peter Gabriel track or something like that, and they go, oh, God, he must be giving them away now, and I'm sure he isn't. And, yeah. um, and they go, what? 400 what? You know, and... Um, yeah. yeah, well, uh, because I, I think Peter Gabriel you know, doesn't care so much about um, money, probably. But it was interesting that the, the Bruce Springsteen, who doesn't let his music ever be used for um, ads, I think, I'm right yeah. saying. And yet he did the, the, the Super Bowl ad for Jeep that uh, came out last week. But he didn't, I can't remember, is there no music on it? He's just, he's just talking. And don't forget, we're, we're talking about all people of a certain age, you know, and, yeah. and, um, and I'm definitely of that certain age. And a lot of these guys are like... Um, like Neil Young and Bob Dylan and that are amortising their forthcoming royalties, um, so that they can pay out all their kids and their and their five ex wives, mm. and um, you know while they're still a bit compass and um, and and get some money around, so there's not a big shit fight at the end of it, because they most likely don't trust their publishing companies to to um, handle this very diligently. In yeah, the, you know. So, you know, the Bob just, what he saw is his whole catalogue for half a half a billion or something like that, you know. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of money, but I, he was kind of giving it away in some ways, you know. Well, Steve Jobs probably would have paid that for him. So yeah. Massive. Yeah. yeah. Massive Dylan fan. Mm. Now, which I've never been. It's like, yeah, some songs, Blood on the Tracks. Yeah. yeah but. but here's the genius of the 20th century. You know, he he's... He's Picasso. He's he's um, he just keeps on giving. Um, so as a songwriter, you take Bob Dylan over Lennon and McCartney. No, 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 because I don't see Bob quite as a songwriter. I see him yeah. as a singing poet. Um, Lennon McCartney, and and this cuts to the crap here. The the real genius of the twentieth century at the moment is Paul McCartney. Um, Paul McCartney is like. If Cole Porter was a brilliant musician, a fantastic singer of any style of music, and yeah. Cole Porter, <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, McCartney does it all. He can be a pain in the ass, and we, sometimes we roll our eyes and we hear one of his latest tracks, and we go, "Oh, please, Paul, stop, stop now." Um, but hell, <laughs> I, I think I think partly because he he is so revered, no one ever tells him that anything he's doing. Yeah, that, um, uh, that happens with all musicians, unfortunately, you know. Yeah, no, no um, with me. Yeah. Um, but we actually, we saw him live, didn't we? At, mm. um, yeah, and I mean, his voice awesome. was pretty sharp. Awesome. But it was still amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Jim, you received the Axis, which is um, the New Zealand Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah. In, I'm going to guesstimate, 2000, sorry, yeah, 2006? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, you don't half remember a lifetime ago. Yeah, yeah and um, a long time. And I, and I do have have to regret. I might I might have apologised to you before, but I was outside on the balcony smoking and drinking, 
and probably trying to <laughs> chat up someone I maybe shouldn't have been chatting up. I don't know. But I, as I, I do apologise um, for missing that. So that was, you know, like, I don't know, t- 10, 12, 14 years ago, mm. 50. What regrets do you have from what is laughably referred to as a music career? Um, I can't think, I really can't think of regrets. Um, I don't look back, I'm not a backwards looker. I mean, that audio culture article, Yeah. that, 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 that was um, exhausting spiritually to do, to look backwards that much. I just don't look back. Um, so th- this is an article that, uh, that that Jim played a part on for, I, I don't know what audio culture is, but it's a, it's a, a, like a New Zealand collection of... It's a wiki of New Zealand um, musical culture. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that in terms that I can understand. <laughs> so were you interviewed for that, or did you write Ye- it? Uh, um, I was interviewed for it and I'd also had a 40 page bio not for any reasons of vanity but yeah. but um but I I was doing it so that my kids and grandkids would have a document they could look at and go oh okay so that's the story because with with all this DNA testing that that's going on in the world and everyone's starting to think about their heritage and yeah. and so I come from my my dad was the youngest of nine. My mum was in the middle of seven, and every one of them seemed to have shagging as their main hobby. Are you so, a Catholic, Jim? And <laughs> um, my dad's family were. I was christened yeah. a Catholic. Yeah. yeah, just to stay so, in the dark. Yeah, yeah. So there's bloody there's there's just so many. I've got so many cousins removed, and that who I keep in touch with almost none of. One of whom I do keep in touch with, who's a who's a British war historian of some acclaim, he started a family tree, and so I thought, oh, I'll get on that too. So I went to get on it, but I couldn't get on it because we don't share any DNA. And um, ah. and I thought, okay, right, I, you know, if only if only these older people from the war era had actually sometime before their deathbed had actually come clean and told everybody exactly the story of their lives um so i'd already done that so that's what that i and i gave that to the person writing the yeah it's a little bit off topic but that doesn't seem to happen like the oral tradition of your uh, of one's family and where they came from and what they did and everything my parents never passed. Oh, extremely off topic, but my parents never passed anything down. To, I haven't got a clue. Um, certainly, the generation before them, I've got that. that yeah, I've I've got, got, I no don't idea. have a lot, and I've got to think that. Also, I'm a, I'm a boy, and when they were saying the stuff, I was younger, um, so I'm, it was most likely flying over my head a bit. Yeah. Um, like my daughter, in some ways, knows more about my the generation before me than I do because. Um, yeah, because she was interested in it, you know, and most likely my sister as well. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, they didn't tell much, you know, and and um and and some of the things they didn't tell, have really had a good go at, uh, at at wrecking the lives of some of their children, you know. Um, just you know, people not not realizing they're actually in the family when we know they are, you know, and you know, yeah. things like that. You know, let's not get, go too far into the to the <laughs> the dark areas of the whole family. <laughs> Final question: If you could be 
if you could have been on stage with with any band or or any musician ever, who would it be? Oh, gee. Um, I wouldn't have minded being. It would have to be two, most likely. When I first started playing well, I would have loved to have been in Mark One of the Rolling Stones. Mm. Um, I just loved that British take on R and B soul before the Stones sort of got it. Before Brian left the band, yeah, I thought they were a really such a honed band. Yeah, one the heroine years got pretty tedious to me. I just got sick of it, you know. Mm. Um, and then I became very besotted with Steely Dan, I, with the with the excellence of Steely Dan. That the fact that you could go over the record and go, okay, well, how could we have improved this? And you think, oh, you couldn't. <laughs> and that's your back, you know. Thanks very much for coming in and and sharing um, and sharing some stories from the the past. Silver Black and a big big bucket of balls. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jim Hall. Cheers. You're listening to Truth and Soul, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. Okay, so thank you very much to the usual suspects for putting this together. Jonathan, Vanessa, Cole, Shane, and the rest of the crew from Franklin Road. Drop me a line at paul at truthandsoul.co.nz if you have helpful comments, unbounded praise, or fishing tips. Now, we have a few people who are keen to come on, and hopefully we can arrange that before too long. Organisation has never been my strong point, as many will attest, and we had a few issues with um, COVID-19, obviously. Uh, Now, young people tell me that apparently I need to encourage you to subscribe, so please find yourself encouraged. Also, a five-star review on iTunes helps, I believe. I know this may be perjury, but it's for a good cause-ish. Thank you for listening. Here's Matt Stalker to play out for you. Check out Matt Stalker and Fables on Spotify. They're great. Stay safe. Thank you. By the flickering spires of candlelight While the wicked sleep sound The anxious toss and turn Thoughts come not as single spies But in battalions While the wicked sleep sound The anxious toss and Family tree is losing its leaves 
Please forgive my trembling hands Crudely silhouetted by the flickering spires of candlelight While the wicked sleep sound I want the anxious toss and turn Thoughts come not a single spice But in battalions While the wicked sleep sound I want the anxious toss and turn